Peace be with you, church. Jesus loves each one of you. He knows you by name. He knows what you're going through in life, the difficulties that you face, and he's with you, and he loves you. I just want to encourage you with that this morning. Before we start this morning, uh, we're continuing a series through the book of Galatians. We've been going through Galatians the past several weeks. Today, we are in Galatians 5. We started uh, last week in Galatians 5. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find this on page 975 in the Blue Pew Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you. So I'd encourage you to open God's Word, turn there with me. We're going to be looking a lot at the text today, so please have your Bible open and ready. I want to point a lot of interesting things out this morning that I hope encourage you, and uh, the Lord can use those things to grow you in your faith this morning. So without further ado... Let's open God's word. This is our authority. This is what teaches us. We ask the Holy Spirit to teach us from his word. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to teach us what he would have for us today from his word in Galatians 5, uh, verses 7 through 12, okay? Follow with me as I read it. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe the main point that we ought to consider in these verses this morning is this. Run well by believing and obeying the gospel or the obstacles you face will keep you from finishing the race. Run well by believing and obeying the gospel or the obstacles you face because we will face obstacles. The obstacles you face will keep you From finishing the race. We're going to do this in three points. First, run well. Second, know your obstacles. And third, finish the race. First point this morning, we're going to start with verse 7, okay? Run well. Paul begins with verse 7 with what would have been quite the encouragement, but because of the context, the situation that the Galatian churches were facing, it serves quite the opposite purpose. It is not an encouragement. You were running well. Running is a common metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses for the Christian life. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Or in Philippians 3, when Paul uses language like, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. On toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 2, 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. That's, that's race language. But if, if you don't want to say that that's race language specifically, we can say that's competition language generally. You don't want to be disqualified from the competition. And then you have some of Paul's last words to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 when he's come to the end of his life. And he says, I have finished the race. It's important for us to learn, church, that the Christian life, in terms of a race, is not a sprint. 
You don't run as hard as you can for a short amount of time, and if you just run faster, it's going to be over faster. That's not how it works. It's better to think of the Christian life as a marathon, a long run that requires a long, steady pace so that you can keep tracking on track until you get to the very end, the finish. Running well is a lifelong process, which in reality, at any point, like the Galatian churches here, you could find yourself not running well. We want to run well because it is those that run well all the way to the end who receive the prize. They receive the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is why a comment like this from the apostle is so jarring. It should be jarring to us to hear this. The idea is that if the churches don't run well, if they in fact stop running altogether, this will spell disaster for them in the end. They will not receive the prize. They will be severed from Christ. They will fall away from grace. The last state will be worse than the first. So run well. But what does it mean to run well? I think Paul's words give us the answer. He says this in the text. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. Your run was hindered. Who hindered you, not from running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? I think the point here is that in order to run well, we must obey the truth. So what does it mean to obey the truth then? Well, we're actually going to do a few word studies this morning. So please bear with me. We're going to dig in a little bit. I think this is going to help you and I understand the text together. So first of all, look at this word obey. Guess what it means? Obey. It's a loaded obey. If we were to amplify this verse to what it fully means, what I think Paul means in the context is we could say like this, obeying out of the full persuasion of the truth. Your full persuasion of the truth leads you to obedience. This kind of obedience isn't obedience to a command from an authority. Do this and then you do it. This is an obedience out of a genuine persuasion, a genuine belief, if that makes sense. We are obeying out of our belief, out of our full persuasion, we are fully persuaded by the gospel. Therefore, we obey the truth. So this obeying the truth means then to be fully persuaded by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and then live it out. Be fully persuaded and then live like you're fully persuaded. Fully persuaded meaning you believe it with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. That we can't work our way to God. That God, in fact, has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's lived the perfect life that we can't. He's died on the cross for our sins, the sins that separated us from our God, the sins that prevented us from having a relationship with him. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In Matthew 9, Jesus himself says he came to call not the righteous, but the sinner. So if Christ is calling sinners, count me among the greatest. Jesus, even in these words, beckons those who would listen to him, come. Come to me. No one is righteous. Jesus came to call the sinner. Do you know what that means? It means salvation is free for all. Because Jesus came to call the sinner. Anyone who repent of their sins and turn to Jesus will be saved. Now you might ask, how is obeying believing, Caleb? Well, that's because of how we think and how we define terms, right? Listen to the words that Jesus says in John 6. He says, uh, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, he answered them, this is the work of God, 
keep the commandments, do what he says. What is he going to say? He says, this is the word of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What does it mean to obey God, to do the works of God, to do that which is acceptable in God's eyes? It is to believe in Jesus whom the Father has sent. Paul, all throughout Galatians, has made it clear that we're justified before our God by faith in Christ alone. It's not what we do, it's what Jesus did. We must be fully persuaded of this gospel and then live accordingly. It shapes our lives accordingly. This language might be a bit of confusing for us because we've largely assigned meaning to two different words, believing and obeying. Believing is something that you could do with your head or your heart. And we've assigned meaning to obeying as something that you do in response to what you believe, right? But the language of the New Testament conflates the two. You don't have one without the other. That's because you don't obey what you don't first believe. And it's obvious that you don't really believe what you say if you don't obey it. We might distinguish them in definition. But to Jesus, the two are inseparable. You don't have one without the other. You don't believe without obeying and you don't obey without believing. Listen to Paul's words, for example, in Romans 10. He says, But they've not all obeyed the gospel. Aren't we supposed to believe the gospel? It says they're not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He uses obey the gospel in connection to Isaiah's words, who has believed and faith. Now, if you're here, and you aren't a Christian, I want you to know we praise God that you're here. We think that this is a big step for you to come to church, whether you've been to church in a long time or you've ever been to church, whether you were invited by a friend or you just decided to come on your own. I personally know how hard of a step that is to take, and I just want to encourage you this morning. That is a big step, and I'm thankful that, that you chose to take it. If I may, though, here's a little challenge for you this morning if you're not a Christian. Here's a challenge from the Bible. Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel call to believe in Jesus? Jesus challenged the people of his day in a lot of ways. He continues to challenge people, every single one of us, today. Just like he says in John 14. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, no one can have a relationship with God except through him. He's making an exclusive claim that no matter how many religions there are, none of them whatsoever can reconcile you to God, only him. What do you think of that? How does that make you feel? To obey the gospel for you is to believe Jesus. Is he crazy? Is what he said true though? If what he said was true, it has eternal significance. If you're here and you claim to be a Christian, Here's a challenge for you from the Bible. Does your faith look like obedience? See, a lot of people in the church today say they believe in Jesus. It's easy. I believe in Jesus. But does your life say that? Does the way that you live say that? James says faith without works is dead. That's because faith expresses itself. Living faith expresses itself in obedience to God because your desires have changed. You want to please God because you love God. You love your neighbor. You want to love him and want to serve him, and you're going to do that in whatever way you can. Does your life look like that? Or have you found yourself hindered like the Galatian churches? I'm going to encourage you today. If you are hindered, There's hope for all of us. His name is Jesus.
we know from the entirety of Galatians, but here specifically, there are hindrances to the truth. Hindrances to living fully persuaded by the gospel, to put it that way. He says, who hindered you? Paul says the answer should be no one. No one has hindered us, Paul. Our pace is steady. We're running the race just like you taught us, just like you delivered to us at first. We, we have the gospel. We believe the gospel. We're fully persuaded by the gospel. We're living in light of the gospel. We're running with Jesus. We're believing him in our hearts with all of our heart, mind, and soul and strength with the energy that the Spirit of God is working with us from the inside out, and he's working it out through us, you see, because we're obeying. No one is hindering us. But as you can see, that's not the answer. Look at that word hindered with me. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because the language of our passage this morning is so important. It's important to catch what Paul is saying overall. So just track with me, okay? You could say, honestly, you could say that every word that Paul uses in the New Testament is important. But I believe Paul is being intentional with his word choice here. And we saw this when we started last week. Uh, for example, in verse 4, when he wrote, You are severed from Christ. Remember that language? That's circumcision language that Paul is recycling to show the Galatian churches who it really is that they're cut off from if they accept works righteousness, if they accept circumcision as a way to be justified before God. So verse 4 in our minds, when I'm, when I'm reading this text, verse 4 is my interpretive key. It's, it's the way I read the rest of the verses if he's using their language already because, because I know already Paul is recycling and redefining their terms. Okay, So this is how I'm reading it. Hindered, the word incopto, we know in English what hindered means, right? It means interrupted or prevented from, from some task. You're hindered. Well, incopto in the Greek is a racing term. It's used to describe that moment when, when one racer cuts in front of another racer. So you can define it cut in. You cut in to gain an advantage. And this, this is why if, we, if you look at track meets today, we have lines to prevent people from cutting across lines because if they cut across the lines, what are they doing? They're violating their lane. They are cheating. But what happens when one runner cuts in on another runner? Well, that other runner has to slow down or change position or dodge them. And it prevents that runner who was running full speed from running full speed. Now they have to change their speed, change their pace. And in that sense, yes, they are hindered. Their run has been interrupted. But listen to that language. That word means cut in. Cut in. Do you hear the resemblance? I think Paul is using this language intentionally. But he's flowing from race to circumcision to what he's going to say in the end. I think sticking with the race for the moment, follow with me, okay? If you're a Christian, would you say you've ever been cut in on while you were running with Jesus. Maybe you can't say for certain when that was or what it was that did it, but have you ever sensed that change of pace? You're running with Jesus, there's a change of pace, there's an interruption, there's a hindrance, their run, your run was interrupted somehow. Has that ever happened to you? It's caused you to slow down, it's caused you to lose step, maybe even in the worst of cases, it's caused you to stumble and fall. Have you ever felt that way? I know there are some here today because I know your story. You not only have been cut in once, but you've been cut in on multiple occasions. Every time you get your momentum after Jesus back up, you get cut in on. 
Sometimes you, you stumble, sometimes you fall, but you, but you get back up and you keep running for Jesus because you know Jesus is worth it, and then the next one comes and cuts in. I want to remind you, if that's you this morning, again, that the Lord sees you. He sees you, and he knows you, and he's with you. He has picked you up time and time again, and he'll continue to protect you as you run your race Glory to God, you didn't start running by your own strength, you started by His. Glory to God, you don't continue running by your own strength, but by His. It's in those moments, they can feel so disastrous, you feel like you've almost lost your faith, you're stumbling, you don't even know how to think, you feel cold from God, you feel distant from Him, you feel like you can't regain your step, you can't run, but after all, when these races cut in, when these racers cut in, it's not helpful for you, you trip, you fall, it's not helpful for your time, it's not helpful for your endurance, your energy levels seem to be sucked out of you, and it's in these moments, church, that I want to encourage you, obey being fully persuaded by the gospel not partially persuaded partiality on our part with belief leads to falling away from grace fully persuaded leads to perseverance sometimes we settle for the partial persuasion and i'm encouraging you can't settle for this the gospel yeah yeah it's sufficient for cleansing me of my sin but but not necessarily helping me run the race now that's not true Oh yeah, the gospel is sufficient for, for making me right with God, but, but not keeping me going on my walk with God. That's not true either. Live fully persuaded by the gospel. The gospel that we say we believe wholeheartedly, yes, but, but this gospel that we're learning even more about in the letter of Galatians, not just something we believe, but it's something we live. It's something that gives us life. It's something that gives us the power to actually walk in obedience. The gospel teaches us that, that running well begins with Christ, it continues with Christ, and it ends with Christ. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Jesus is sufficient for life and for living. Okay, he who has ears, let him hear this, okay? Jesus is sufficient for being counted righteous, justified before your God, and living righteous, the way that God expects you to live. What gospel are you obeying this morning? Are you obeying the one true gospel that tells you you are in the right with God and you will, he will keep you all the way to the end? Are you believing some gospel that says you're not in the right with God or it says you were then but now you lost it and you need to get back your steps by your own strength? What gospel are you believing this morning? The gospel that we say we believe teaches us that Jesus is sufficient to make me right with God and to make me live right for God. Are you trusting in yourself for either of those things? Are you trusting in your own strength for either of those things? Listen to me, church. Trust in Jesus. He saves you and he keeps you. Abide in him. If you want to read a little bit about that this week, read John 15. Just read John 15 over and over and over until it sets into your soul what Jesus has done for you, the love he has for you, the joy that he offers you, if you abide in him, he abides in you. We have to look at Jesus. 
always eyes on him because there are countless things. I don't have to go one person in this room to get a list of a thousand things that would cut in on us in our lifelong race for Jesus. Broadly, if you want to be broad, you could just say the world, the flesh, and the devil are ready at any moment to just cut right in, cut you right off so that you can die in your sins. But if you want to get specific right here in our text, in Galatians, which is where we are right now, what are those things that seem to cut in on us in our race when we're pursuing after Jesus? That leads us to the second point. Know your obstacles. Verses 7 through 11. I see six obstacles to running well in what Paul says here to the Galatian church. I'm not saying that this is exhaustive because anything that turns you away from Jesus to your flesh or to the world is an obstacle. Anything, no matter what it is. And they're countless, like I said. But there are six here that I want you to see this morning. The first one is this, verse 7. Disobeying truth. Disobeying truth. If running well is obeying the truth, then the first obstacle we see here is disobeying truth. Because we know what that word means. We can see that this isn't just a failure to do something that's required of us by the gospel. This is, a fundament, this is fundamentally a failure to believe the gospel. All the way down to the core, this is what it is. It is disbelief. Disobedience is disbelief. My encouragement, again, to anyone who has not yet believed the gospel is that Jesus loves you. And Jesus calls you to believe in him, believe in what he did for you on the cross, kids, so that you could have eternal life. And then he could work inside of you and make you live like you have eternal life. Belief that he's died for your sins, rose from the dead so that you could have a relationship with God. Not just today, but every day. Every day until the last day. But this text isn't primarily speaking to you. It's actually speaking to Christians who choose to disobey the truth. Rather than being fully persuaded by it and therefore driven to obedience by it, there's a deeper issue of disbelief at work right now in the church. It's deeper than outward disobedience to truth. It reveals a heart that in some way or another has turned away or is turning away from the truth. Christian, if you find yourself believing the gospel less and less, it is dangerous. But there's hope for you. If you find yourself maybe even at a point of complete disbelief in the gospel, it is dangerous. Maybe you, you don't even feel fully persuaded by the gospel. There is hope for you. There's hope for you. But if you are there, the Bible makes it clear that this is a dangerous place to be. The word of God would say that you're being blinded by darkness. You're walking in the your darkened understanding. Maybe, maybe you're even being deceived because you say with your mouth that you believe it, but your actions prove otherwise. A life of disobedience is evidence of disbelief. If you really believe, you obey. Because Jesus works it out inside of you. I would encourage you, if you found yourself in patterns of unrepentant sin, of pushing Jesus farther and farther away, you feel the conviction to pray, you push it farther and farther away. It used to be the first five minutes, but now it's two weeks. Maybe you, you know, maybe you know that's not good. Maybe you know you've fallen short. Well, hear me when I say this. Jesus stands at any moment ready to forgive you, at any moment. 
any moment when you call out to him. Be fully persuaded of this, okay? Jesus is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just some, including disbelief. If it's hard for you to believe what he did for you, he can forgive you even of this. And then he accredits that righteousness to you like you actually did believe it. In fact, I'd say Jesus is more ready to receive you when you come to him than you are to go to him. He's more ready, arms open wide, to receive you and forgive you with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his strength, because God, he is our God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let that, our God and his character, manifested in the person work of Jesus, standing before you today with his arms open wide, let that be an encouragement to you to not run away from Jesus, but to run to Jesus, full speed into his arms open wide, ready to give you a hug and love you and forgive you. Number two, false teaching. Verse eight. Verse eight says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, we remember our definition of obey, right? Obeying out of a full persuasion of, of believing out of the, in the gospel. You can see actually how Paul flows into this statement here. It actually comes together. Where'd persuasion come from? Well, if he's talking about obedience being from fully persuaded it makes sense here that he would say this persuasion, this new way of thinking, this is not true persuasion. This is not the, the full persuasion that leads to obeying the truth, but this persuasion is of a different kind. This is a, a different persuasion, and it is not from the Father. Think back in, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Who is it that calls us? It's the Father. He who calls you. The Father is the one who calls us in the grace of Christ. Where? Out of darkness into his light. But this new persuasion that's, that's come on scene is, in fact, it is persuading them away from the Father. And I think this is a persuasion, yes, from the Judaizers, but remember the, the battle that we're in. It's deeper than flesh and bones. This is a persuasion from the Judaizers, but further behind the Judaizers is the ruler of this world, Satan, who would love nothing else than, than to prevent even the elect, if he could, from finishing the race. This persuasion, according to the Galatians, is that you can earn your way to heaven. You can make it. You can be justified by, by works rather than faith in Christ. This is, important why it's, this is why it's important to know our enemy. We might not be tempted towards keeping law or circumcision, but how many times have you been tempted towards works righteousness? It's the same old thing. Hear me when I say this. This is not from the Father, the one true God who calls you. It is from Satan that you think you can work your way to heaven. It keeps you in chains because you can never attain what it demands. Or if you actually feel like you get in a good rhythm and you're actually a really good person and, and you're really good at obeying religion, then you actually live the rest of your life in blinded self-righteousness like you've actually earned something from God. Think about Paul himself, the Pharisee of Pharisees, Philippians 3. He lists his credentials Everything you need to be right with God, he has everything. All of his righteousness on full display. He knows exactly what line he even came down to to tell you how righteous of a person he was. But all the righteousness that Judaism said that he needed, that it had to offer, he says it was all garbage waste for the sake of knowing Jesus. It was all a waste. 
How do you feel about your righteousness? The, pers- the persuasion of works righteousness is not from God. Do you ever hear that lie, church? Do you ever tell yourself that lie? Are you ever tempted to believe the lie that God's expectation is your perfection by your own strength? Listen to God's gospel. All the way back to chapter 1. Don't listen to the, this false gospel, not the deception of the Judaizers here, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the deception of Satan. God did not say, be good enough and keep all my commandments, and if you do that, then I will save you. No. That's why God came to us in the first place, because we weren't good enough. We could never be good enough. And he saved us, the scriptures say, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The scary thing about this message of working your way to heaven is that it really is persuasive. Think about it. If you just do good enough, if you do more good than bad, if you're moral, if you complete this list, then you go to heaven. It sounds good, but do you know why it sounds good? Because everything in us screams we want to earn something. It seems like it's attainable. It's really easy to check off boxes, is it not? It seems like it's possible. We love lists. We love, deeper, deeper than lists, we love to feel like we deserve something from God. We love to feel like when, when we get there, we show God our list and we're like, God, look at all this stuff that I did. You owe me. You owe me. But it's not true. God owes us nothing. And almost, if you're running a race, like a road sign, That says shortcut. Oh man, you start to think about how hard the real race has been. You start to feel exasperated about how tired you are. You actually feel more tired now than you were three seconds ago when you see that there's a shortcut available. You start to weigh what presents itself to you as an easier way ahead. But let me encourage you, don't go down the path. Don't even entertain the path. Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. Who's the narrow gate? Jesus. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by that gate are many. How much is many? It's a lot of people. Don't take what presents itself to you as a shortcut as an easier way for righteousness. The Christian life is a marathon, church. you got to keep steady. you got to watch out for the obstacles of false teaching that would lead you down the wrong path and disqualify you. If the persuasion is not from God, you shouldn't listen to it. You shouldn't entertain it at all, no matter, no matter how good it sounds. It could be the most beautiful siren song that you've ever heard, the most alluring sounding thing, and you love the way that it sounds, but how do you know if it's from God or not? God's gospel has been preserved for us right here. It's his gospel, once for all delivered to the saints. So my encouragement, so you don't listen to the song that sounds really good, is to be a gospel pro, to shout back the truths of the gospel when those songs start to sing your way. Say the truths out loud if you need to. Be a gospel pro that Jesus alone saves sinners. I am a sinner. I need Jesus. I can't work my way to heaven. Jesus can save me from this burden of the law, feeling like it's all on my back. If you go that way, it will lure you away from the living God. Number three, obstacle. 
spreading error. Not verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He, he clarifies what that means uh, was their teaching. Well, in Luke chapter 12, Luke gives us a little bit further clarification of what that is, and he points out that it's hypocrisy. Jesus used the example of leaven <clears throat> also positively. He used it in, in the case of the spreading of the kingdom of God. So it's, it's not all negative. But here, it is negative. The spreading of like leaven of what? The false teacher's messages. Error. Like leaven, erroneous teaching comes from false teachers and it spreads real slow sometimes, undetected for a long time until it's fully leavened the whole lump. It can almost <clears throat> spread unnoticeably. If it is left unchecked, if we're, not, if we're not looking at the messages that we're hearing with, with a gospel lens, the gospel in the forefront of our minds, if we leave error unchecked, you'll find that the whole lump has been leavened. In this case, the lump is the church. And I think there are two levels within the church that leaven spreads. I think leaven spreads first at the individual level, and I think leaven spreads second at the corporate level. At the individual level, if a Christian <clears throat> receives erroneous teaching and doesn't confront it immediately, he lets it sit unchecked, then the believability of the error starts to spread into the very foundation of their faith. They start to think different about the gospel. They start to act different in accordance with the gospel. They start to question the truth of the gospel, maybe even leading others to start to distrust and question the truth of the gospel themselves. Even the people who teach that gospel, the truth of their leaders, distrust their leaders, distrust other believers in the congregation who care for them. If error continues to spread in a person individually, it will eventually lead them to disbelief altogether. You believe error. At the corporate level, if this is happening to one church member over here, right? If it's left unchecked with this guy over here or this lady over here and it starts to grow in them and then that member starts to share their new perspective, this new persuasion with other members of the church unchecked, Unstop, not stopped, then what started as an error in one member has now spread to several members of the church and what was once an error in one person that needed to be checked right off the bat with the truth of the gospel, it, that individual did not check it and others around them didn't check it in them and now it has led to many people being led astray because of one error in one person. This is dangerous, church. You might not fall away because of your sin. You might fall away because somebody else le led you into error. And you listen. See the danger in that if you personally leave error unchecked in your heart, you could be the catalyst for leaven spreading through the rest of your church. Check the errors. Bring them and lay them before the word of God. Let the word of God correct whatever that error is and remind you the truth of the gospel. If you don't see it, Lord willing, a brother or sister sees it. And if you're the brother or sister who sees it, then you are responsible to check that error. 
to go to that brother or sister and, and vocalize this error and remind them of the truth of the gospel from God's word. God's word's authority. What you think's not the authority. You bring God's word to them and you check that error for them. Go to the brother and sister in love and correct the error that you see. You may just save people. You may just save people from the leaven of error spreading through the entire church that it would have otherwise spread had you not checked it in the first place. Pastors are called to do this, absolutely, but pastors are not the only people called to do this. Church members are called to do this. Don't forsake your call to the regular ministry of the gospel to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't believe the lie that leaven just affects one person either. Oh, they'll just affect them and then they'll be done and they'll leave. That doesn't, that's not how it works. It will affect the whole church. We all need to be on guard against leaven personally and corporately for the sake of finishing and for the sake of others finishing with us in this race. Christians, Christian, if you love your brother and sister, your love will manifest itself in a watchful protection and a care over the rest of your brothers and sisters in the church. That's how Christian love looks in this, in this case. To stick to the race analogy, error can spread like a cramp starts in your side. And if you ever felt one, it spreads from your side, then it goes to your shoulder, and then it goes to your back if you don't check it. Then you got to slow down, and then the rest of your team has to slow down with you to help you. But maybe you stop, and instead of taking the balm, taking the water, and drinking the water for your cramp, you've actually stopped the rest of your team from running the race. The water that you need, these electrolytes, if you will, right? To deal with your cramp for the sake of everyone else. If you want to take the analogy to the church, the water you need is the living water of Jesus Christ. Only the living water can cleanse out this unhealthy leaven from you and from the church. Drink of the living fountain of the Lord Jesus by believing and obeying the gospel. Number four obstacle, believing error. So there's spreading error. That's one thing. But believing error is another thing that I wanted to add here. Verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That word confidence there, okay? Here's more connection of language. That word confidence means fully persuaded. I am fully persuaded in the Lord that you'll take no other view. Do you see the connection that he's trying to use all the same language, even though he says it just a little bit differently throughout this text? It's gonna be important later. Notice his persuasion as an example for us is not from the flesh. Where is his persuasion from? His persuasion is from the Lord. It's in the Lord, who alone can set us back on track and keep us running when error is present. But what I want you to focus on here in verse 10 is when Paul says, no other view. You, there might be a lot of views on what makes someone right with God other than faith in Christ alone. And I'm sure there are plenty. There are plenty. And those things could spread. We don't want them to spread because they are persuasive and we don't want weaker brothers or sisters falling prey to these lies. We also don't want those kinds of messages floating around our church. But what's worse than spreading error is the reality that the error is believed. Paul says he is fully persuaded in the Lord they will take no other view. The Lord is his hope, not their flesh. In fact, there is no other view. He asked that they would take no other view. In fact, there is no other view because there is no other way to be saved, only Jesus. And not only this, not only is there 
no other way to be saved, but there must be no synchronizing of ways to be saved either. Like I'll take a little bit of, of works-based righteousness over here and then Jesus here. Or, or I'll take some crystals and manifestations and, and meditation over here and, and yoga and horoscopes over here. But, but then I'll have Jesus over here. And as long as I got Jesus, I'm good, right? I can keep doing all this other stuff and conjuring spirits and trying to seek a higher being this way, right? Or, or I can believe Muhammad, but, but as long as I got Jesus on the side, like I'm okay with God, right? Or, or I can believe that the universe is watching over me. And as long as I know that the universe is watching me, but, but I say Jesus' name and believe in him, then I'm going to be okay, right? No. There's no gospel plus. There's no gospel plus something else. And there's no gospel minus Jesus. There's only the gospel. Because Jesus alone can save us from our sins and nothing else. There are people who you know who call themselves Christians today, who think they can, they can sync up pagan practices with Jesus and it's going to be fine, but you can't. There are people who call themselves Christians today who think you can have Jesus, but without all the sin and without all the judgment part, we don't want any of that wrath stuff, but you can't. There are people who call themselves Christians today who claim Jesus as their Messiah and they follow Jesus and everything that he says, but they are content with murdering children in the womb, content with issues in the public square regarding gender and sexuality. They would affirm that there is more than one way to get to God and that your truth is your truth no matter what anybody else says. Nobody can prove you wrong, but you can't. You can't mix any of it because you can't mix darkness with light. Light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Are you overcome by Jesus? You can't have Jesus and the world too, and your sin too. You have to pick one or the other, light or dark, the world, the flesh, and the devil, or Jesus. 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a final, final word right there. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It means you don't have Jesus living in you. This means we need to recognize error when it comes so that we don't believe error before we know it or we don't start mixing error in with the truth of the gospel because after a while, that leaven's going to spread and you're not even going to believe the gospel anymore. Number five, doubting truth. Doubting truth. What happens when error spreads and error is believed? You and others in the church begin to doubt the truth, the truth of the gospel. And I just want to make a brief point on this because I think it's implicit in the text. I think a little doubt, like leaven, can grow into big doubt as you start to question why you believe what you believe. A lot of y'all have felt this. A little doubt grows into a big doubt after a while if it's not unchecked. That is a, not a bad question to sell. Uh, let me ask you, that's not a bad question to ask yourself. Why do you believe what you believe? That's a good question. It's important to have a faithful answer to that question, though. If somebody was to ask you, why do you believe what you believe? It's not good enough to say, well, my parents were Christians, so, so I am too. It's not good enough. What do you mean by that? If they were to say, oh, you know, well, the Bible says, and that's why. Why do you believe what you believe? Have a good answer to that question, okay? Why do you believe the Bible is true? Why does your parents' faith, what does it have to do with yours? What is the gospel? Galatians 6 says, each man will bear his own load. Why do you believe the gospel? If you aren't prepared, those kinds of questions, they will lend more towards doubt in your own self, in your own faith, doubt in your heart, rather than giving a reason for the hope that is in your heart. 
as doubt grows, we tend to stop looking at Jesus and we start looking at ourselves. So if you are doubting your faith, if you're doubting God's love for you, I want to encourage you this morning. If you're, if you're doubting that the Spirit is even working in your life, I want to tell you to look afresh to Jesus. Just look to him. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Know him. Know his love for you. Trust him, even though the waves, like the song says, the waves of doubt blow through us, and it seems our sails have all been torn. Deeper still then goes the anchor. Jesus is our anchor. You can't hold yourself fast. Hold fast to him. He holds you fast to the Lord, the Father. Last obstacle, number six, fear of persecution. Fear of persecution. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Notice, if Paul still preached circumcision, which I don't think he ever did, I think the Judaizers were claiming he did, and he's refuting that claim, but as we know, because as we know, right, Paul had no problem with people living according to their customs. He had no problem with Jews being circumcised as long as they weren't circumcised for salvation. He's not going to ask a Gentile to be circumcised like Titus, but it's okay if Timothy, a Jew, is circumcised in accordance with his culture. But notice the point here. If he did preach circumcision, there would be no persecution. How persuasive does that sound? How easy does that sound? No persecution? All I have to say is keep the law and work really hard and you'll be saved? Why no persecution there? Well, because the offense of the cross has been severed. That word right there, removed, it's the same word used in, chapter, in verse 4. Severed. The offense has been severed. That word removed. Same word as verse 4. Preaching the cross is offensive. It's offensive and it comes with persecution. Notice I didn't say that persecution was the obstacle that we need to be on guard against, right? Fear of persecution is the obstacle because fear will lead to compromise. Fear of persecution will keep you from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you with boldness and confidence because it's the only message that can save. Fear of persecution will keep you from living openly and living honestly for Christ. Fear of persecution will cut in on you and keep you from finishing the race because you are afraid of all the obstacles that might cut in on you and the harm that they could do to you. You start to imagine all the potentials and you start to ask questions like, what if they trip me up? What if I'm hurt? What if, what if this kind of persecution happens? What if that kind of persecution happens? What if I can't buy food? What if I lose everything? What if I lose my life? What if I lose my family? What is the worse than this? Is what if those that are falling themselves, these false teachers, grab you and bring you down with them? Because you're overcome with fear of them and not fear of God. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But he also says, take heart. I've overcome the world. Running in fear will cause you to slow down, spend too much time thinking about all the possibilities of persecution that could come your way until the point where you stop running altogether. It'd be easier just to compromise. It'd be easier to stop preaching the gospel, at least maybe even vocally. Maybe you just say it in private. Or maybe when, when in private you're confronted, you just stop saying it in, in private. It'd be just easier to stop preaching it. And then further than that, it'd be easier to just stop living the gospel, right? Because if we're living the gospel, our lives are going to be offensive. It would be easier to accept 
their messages and just let them win, at least I wouldn't be persecuted, right? You don't want to find yourself in that place, church. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? Why do you believe that? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Do you believe that? Why? Let me read 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here's our response to persecution. But rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if he begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Do you believe that? If God is for us, who could be against us? We have a hope that reached far beyond temporary persecution for the name of Jesus. So let it come. Come what may so that we can run for his glory and not our own. Come what may so that his name would be magnified, that he would increase and that I would decrease because all glory be to Jesus, not to me. Who was crucified? Him. Who died? Him. And who was buried? It was him for our transgressions and sins. But he rose from the dead and now he's seated in heaven where he rules and reigns over everything. Is he your king? Will he not redeem you? Will he not keep you through the fiery trial when it comes upon you so that you can rejoice? And then one day he's going to return and he's going to judge the living and the dead. You and your persecutors. The cross is offensive because it exposes human weakness and it exposes our inability to save ourselves. The cross says you weren't nor could you ever be good enough. So Jesus had to come and die for you. The cross says you can't earn your salvation out no matter how good you are by your works. The cross says there is no other way, no other savior, no other bridge between heaven and earth. You can't save yourself. You must look outside of yourself to the one who is lifted up on a tree to die the death that you and I deserve. He's the only hope. The cross says life can be given to you for free. Who doesn't want free gifts? It can be given to you for free as a gift by faith. And that's offensive because I want to work my way there. It's offensive to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And it's the, that power, his power, that not only saves, but it gives us the strength and the ability to endure persecution when we're proclaiming that power to other people who need it. Because he said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He will never do it. And never means never all the way until the end when he reunites us with himself. When you look at these obstacles, all the ideas about persecution that you have in your mind and all these other obstacles, don't they just tend to work together? Don't they tend to come together and try to lead you away in this, this, this giant effort away from Jesus? Almost, it's almost like we have an invisible enemy who is intentionally trying to, to cut in on us 
in every way that he can and persuade us to stop believing the gospel or living the gospel to, to keep us, an enemy to keep us from finishing our race in whatever way that we can. But we can't stop. And this brings us to the final point. Finish the race. You either finish the race or you don't. For those who finish the race, there awaits for us a crown of righteousness that Jesus himself will have in hand and will give it to us. For those who finish the race, we have awaiting for us the hope of glory, eternal life in Christ Jesus. We have entrance through the narrow gate, our great shepherd, into the kingdom of God where we will dwell in his pastures secure forever. We have this hope for us. But for those who don't finish the race, there's another outcome. There's another outcome for them. And I think that we can see this in the text. Paul, I think, is speaking to two types of people here in our text specifically. He's speaking to those who were running well, and he's speaking to those who trouble them. Starting with verse 7, you were running well. The idea is we've seen, if they stop running, they won't finish. And there's someone who's cutting in on them to do this. That's the second person, the one cutting in, the troubler. First, uh, in verse 10, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And the fate they suffer, they will suffer together. The one who is troubled and the troubler. Because our God is not partial. He is impartial. Repaying each one according to their deeds. And if the church, the Galatians, whoever they are, they turn and they accept this false message, they will receive the same fate that those false teachers will receive. But what is this fate? Look at verse 12. Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, this is important, and I want to explain this for you. It took me a minute to understand it myself. It's interesting, actually, that most scholars take verse 12 as a sarcastic comment, just a comment that Paul says, like, at the Judaizers, I'm tweeting you, I wish you would just cut the whole thing off. But most scholars, and it's weird, most scholars think that. But I'll be honest, I don't think that. I don't think that. Coming from a man who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Coming from a man who says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Coming from a man who says, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He's including himself. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Coming from that man... It's hard for me to believe that he's just trying to be sarcastic. We know what the words say, right? We know what they say. And that's what makes texts like this difficult when we're reading scriptures. We can know what the words say, word for word, translation to translation, but it could be difficult to interpret what it means. I think this has become one of those verses. You may even have read the verse like this before, like, oh, Paul, you got him. But 
I don't think Paul cares about one-upping these Judaizers. I don't think he cares at all. I think Paul cares deeply about these churches. He loves them so much, and he wants them to be saved. He wants them to run the race all the way to the end. He desires their protection. He wants to be the protector of them, to, to almost bring them back in the wound and, and rebirth them fully formed in Jesus. He wants their ultimate salvation, that they'd finish the race, and he wants to remove any obstacle that can stop them from running that race, including Judaizers. Two words I need you to follow with me before I tell you what I think this verse means. Unsettled, right there in the verse. It ties to the previous verse, troubling. The idea is that these messages from the Judaizers are, here it is, causing doubt. That's why they're unsettled. That's why they're troubled. Because doubt is forming. Doubt is being caused. Because these Judaizers are persuading them away from the truth. They're unsettled where they would originally have been fully persuaded. So you can see that connection there. And then the second word, our ESV says emasculate. Now we know what that English word means. But I actually don't think that it catches the real point of the text. The word is, uh, I'm mispronouncing it, apocopto, apocopto. This word, the only reason I'm pointing it out is because this, this word's different than all the other words that he's used Talking about circumcision, cutting in, severing. It's a different word. So that's why some translators say that this has got to be a sarcastic play. This is a really strong word. He's got to be being sarcastic, making a point. But I don't think that's the case. That word is used six times in the New Testament. It's used by Jesus when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's used when Peter cuts off the ear of the man in Gethsemane. It's used when Paul is shipwrecked in Acts 27 and the soldier cuts away the rope from the boat and it's used here. The word means to cut off completely. If Paul's connection is with circumcision strictly, I could see why they translated emasculate. I could see why people are saying what they say, but I don't think that's what Paul is doing entirely. This entire section, I think if you have the whole thing in view, from verse 1 all the way down to verse 15, Paul is recycling the Judaizer's language to prove a point. He's using circumcision language all throughout it, which hints me in this direction, to show these Judaizers and the church that if they accept those terms, they are cut off from Christ. They are severed, verse 4. Verse 7, he says they cut in. Verse 11, again, the offense of the cross is severed. If I was to amplify the words of verse 12 a little bit to get the point, I would say this. Paul says, would that they cut themselves off completely. The ones causing you to doubt your persuasion rather than you. With all this in mind, okay, a lot of, a lot of thinking behind this, I believe Paul's wish here is not physical emasculation. But if accepting circumcision severs you from Christ, he would wish that the Judaizers who so desired circumcision in this way of life and who so desired to lead other people astray into this heresy, this false gospel, Paul's wish, and he says it here, is that they would instead choose to cut themselves off completely from Jesus rather than continuing to persuade the church and everyone around them to do that themselves. I think Paul's comments here are eschatological. I think it's a, a way of pronouncing judgment. He's using their language to reference final, ultimate judgment for their actions. He's just using their language to show them what that means. Not physical mutilation, but spiritually being cut off forever. For those who didn't finish the race, who don't finish the race, judgment awaits. 
Apart from Christ, we will bear the penalty. Verse 10, whoever we are, God is impartial. It does not matter whether you were the false teacher, although this is an encouragement for you to stop. It does not matter if you're the one who was falsely taught and led astray. God's judgment is impartial. Anyone outside of the cross of Christ will receive the full wrath of God against sin, and this is not a light matter. They will be cut off completely from their creator for all eternity. Suffering in that place where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The warning embedded in this text is that whether you are persuaded, whether you're led away from Jesus, whether you stop running the race, or you are the persuader, the one who leads people away from the gospel, not running yourself, but actually preventing the runners from running themselves too, Either way, you both will receive wrath of our unri- our, the wrath of our righteous God against all unrighteousness on the final day. But what's also embedded, and I want to leave this with you, what's embedded in this passage is hope. You were running well. You can continue. Whether you are the persuaded or the persuader, you can still repent and turn to Jesus. No one is too far to repent of this. Christ offers salvation to all without partiality. And it's available to all as long as we have today. Tomorrow is not promised. As long as it's called today, when you hear the Spirit's voice, don't harden your heart. Obey the truth. Let this be an encouragement for you, Christian, to pray for all the false teachers that you might think going through your head. Pray for them. When's the last time you prayed for them to be converted to the true gospel of Jesus? When's the last time you stopped worrying yourself and trying to fight all their arguments off? When's the last time you've given them over to the Lord in prayer, asking God to save them now so that they no longer lead many people astray, but they lead people to the one true Jesus? Let's obey the Lord's command to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Like Paul says in Romans 16, bless those who persecute us. Not just persecute us physically or spiritually or whatever that might be, but persecute us on on television and all this other kinds of stuff when they try to preach a false gospel. Pray for them, bless them, share the true gospel with them. Who knows? The Lord might save them. He might save them. And they might join us in our race rather than hindering the thousands and thousands and thousands that they would have hindered had you not prayed, had you not interceded for them, had you not shared the gospel with them. Continue with the Lord Jesus in his mission to save even false teachers from destruction. Let this also be an encouragement to you to pray for people who don't know Jesus. Even though they might be persuaded away from him now, trust the Lord's power, plant a seed, and ask the Lord to cause it to grow. Pray for them. Who knows? The Lord might save them. They might join us in our race too, as we hold fast to our confession without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He is our foundation. So church, keep running by setting your eyes on Christ Jesus by faith, not looking to the right, not looking to the left, not watching so much about obstacles that you lose sight of the true one you are to chase after. Run like you want to win the race. Run because your eternal life depends on it. Let me finish with Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let us run and not grow weary. Let us trust the Lord our God. Let's pray.